move. I said the cannonball. <laughs> I'm teasing. Uh, it is a joy to be back here once again. Uh, my wife, Lucy, and three kids uh, are joining us, uh, uh, join me on this trip, as they always do. And uh, with, with each visit, it seems like our family is growing. It grew so much that it took two houses to contain us. The uh, Gocha family and the Marlowe's are housing us, and we're so grateful for their kindness and hospitality to us. Uh, they have great coffee, so accept their hospitality if they extend an invitation. Uh, I'm delighted to be here with you all once again uh, to break open the Word of God this morning. And as you see in your bulletins, uh, our passage comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and I invite you to follow along as it's read into your hearing. Here you'll find these words recorded. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the death sentence. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us. Lord, we thank you for your words and the promises contained therein. And we ask for your help now. We pray that you would remove the veil off of blind eyes, remove the block out of deaf ears, turn the heart of stone into heart of flesh. And Lord, we ask that you would empower me for this your service. What is not of you, please let it fall to the ground. May my words be yours. Not to us, O Lord, be the glory. Not to us, O Lord, but to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have a dear friend who is old enough to be my father, and he's also a pastor, has kids uh, slightly younger than me. You know, I like to hang out with older folks. I spent a lot of time at the downtown YMCA in Orlando with the crew that's retired or on their way to retirement, and I get regular history lessons. Uh, but this friend, though not associated with them, is one of those types of friends that 
gives me a history lesson regularly and always has an encouraging word. And he said to me, Michael, I want you to pay close attention to your children, for they teach us a lot about God's character. And I've taken him up on his word, and I'm still learning. I've got three kids, all of which are precocious little girls, six, four, and two, and I'm being sanctified through and through. Well, recently, uh, in fact, just a couple days ago, when we were walking at the park, uh, my number two wanted me to push on the swing because she saw her other two, her t other two older daughters swinging back and forth, and my wife Lucy got my attention and said, "Michael, Carissa wants your attention." She wants you to push on the swing. So I walked over and I started pushing Carissa and she was happy and doing her thing. And once she got off the swing, she came over to sit next to, well, she didn't come to sit next to me. She had some chocolate milk on the bench and she picked up her chocolate milk and then she started hovering around my kneecaps. And Lucy leaned over, my godly and gracious wife, my astute godly and gracious wife and said, Michael, Carissa wants your attention. I said, surely she doesn't want my attention. Uh, then I picked her up, and she sat down for a second, and she slid right back down. And I said, oh, is that, thing, is that that thing you were talking about, the whole reassurance where they just want you to comfort them real quick? They just want to know that you love them, and they're off. And she said, that's right. They just want to check in occasionally to make sure that you love them and that their father uh, is present with them. And we all, beloved, like my little two-year-old Carissa, uh, need to check in with our Heavenly Father. We all long to know that He cares for us and that He's present in our situation, especially in our times of affliction. And to that end, I want to offer us a word of encouragement this morning about the God of all comfort you see is the main theme of our text. And I want to propose three points to you this morning the God of comfort in affliction, the comfort of God through affliction, and the purpose of God in affliction. Again, that's the comfort of God, the, the God of comfort rather, the comfort of God, and then the purpose of God in affliction. If we look here at the first point, we see the God of all comfort in verses three and four, and Paul opens with praise and says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul opens after the greeting with praise just like he did in the book of Ephesians when he thanks God for all the blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, the God we serve, the God of all comfort is worthy of our praise, he's worthy of our affection, he's worthy of our adoration and Paul would have us think Nothing other than that. We see two members of the Trinity presented for us, God the Father, gracious and loving, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of our souls who laid down his life uh, for the great salvation in which we now stand. He said that this is the God of all comfort. So Paul wants us to see something about the character of God. We see the nature of God there quickly, but we see the character of God. God is merciful. God is kind, he's loving, he's compassionate, and he loves to provide comfort to his people. And if we were to do a survey of the Old Testament, we wouldn't have enough time this morning to expound upon all the litany of passages that speak of God's love, his character, of his kindness, and his mercy. And 
Chad Van Dixhorn, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the minutes of the Westminster Assembly, alludes to this, that the divines knew well and good the loving character of God. They knew that very well, that he was a gracious, kind, and loving God because the confession is replete with examples of that reality. But if we were to rewind and look at, uh, just go back, re hit the rewind button in redemptive history, we would see that God is kind and compassionate to the just and the unjust. In fact, Matthew tells us that God rains down on the just and he rains down on the unjust. That is, God has a common love for those who are in the covenantal family, a special love for those who are in the covenantal family, but he also has a common love for those who are outside of the covenant family. He provides them with material blessings as well. So it flows from the character of God that he is a loving and kind God and benevolent God towards his creatures. We see this in Genesis chapter 16 and 21, the episode with Hagar and Sarah, 10 years in the land, uh, Abraham and Sarah spent 10 years in the land and as you'll remember God promised they would have a son and there was no son so Sarah says perhaps this son will come through Hagar the slave the servant and well they attempt to do that and Hagar gets pregnant and then she looks scornfully on Sarah and Sarah gets upset and dismisses her well Sarah uh, Hagar is hurt by that and she flees the house and she cries out and the angel of the Lord comes to her and says that the Lord has heard your cry. The Lord has seen your affliction. Uh, this, was the, this was the slave woman. And God makes a promise that Ishmael will have numerous descendants. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. But nonetheless, the Lord heard her cry. And as a result, she named that place Beer Lahai Roy. The Lord hears, the Lord sees. So the Lord is very much acquainted. The Lord is very much in tune with what's going on with all of his creatures. He's the God of all comfort. If we were to move forward, we'd see in Exodus chapter two that the cry of God's people reached the heavens. They were under the oppressive regime of Egypt and Pharaoh increased their labors they were crying out to God, and then the Lord raised up Moses and said that I see, that I hear, and that I know the affliction of my people. Now that's not an abstract God. That's not an unknowable, impersonal God that's floating somewhere up there in another reality that's unacquainted what's going on down here on earth. The Lord said, I see, I hear, and I know the affliction of my people, beloved. God is in tune with what's going on in our lives. And so God decides that he'll respond, that he'll do something about the affliction of his people. Not only does he see, not only does he hear, not only does he know, but he's a God who acts on behalf of his people. And then we see as God redeems his people from the oppressive regime of the Egyptians, provides for them in the wilderness, you would think that the Israelites would be flowing with gratitude. But shortly after um, uh, Miriam's song, after witnessing God's deliverance, the people start grumbling, they start complaining, 
They get down to the foot of Sinai and say, I will do all, we will do all that the Lord has instructed us to do. Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and then what happens? They engage in idolatry at the foot of the mountain. The Lord says, I tell you what, Moses, you go on to the promised land without me. You all go ahead. You take these stiff-necked people on without me. And Moses has the audacity to beg and intercede on behalf of God's people, pleading the mercy of God, not to judge them according to their sin. And the Lord acquiesces. The Lord shows favor to Moses, the, the mediator. And Moses says, Lord, will you show me your glory? The Lord says, I can't show you my face, but I'll let all my goodness pass by you. Moses, hide behind that rock over there. And then we get to Exodus chapter 34. And the Lord passes by Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, gracious, merciful, and abounding in steadfast love. You see, he's a merciful God. He doesn't judge us according to our deeds, because if he did, we'd all be wiped out. But he's kind and he's compassionate and Moses appeals to the mercy of God. We see as we move through the Bible that mercy, goodness, kindness, love, and faithfulness has always characterized the God we serve. We move on after the Israelites have already inherited the promised land. And then again, we see waywardness, we see idolatry, we see sin. And now Assyria comes and overthrows the territory of Judah. And now the Israelites are under Assyrian captivity and the Lord comes to them in Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people. Isaiah, Isaiah comforts them because not only will they, not only are they under Assyrian exile, but they will soon face Babylonian captivity and the Lord, captivity and the Lord says to them, there will come a time where your war will end. Your troubles will cease, your sins will will be forgiven and you move down chapter 40 and the Lord says that one will come out of the wilderness who will prepare the way for the Lord. He will make straight the paths of the Lord and we see this fulfilled in John the Baptist who comes as the forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ and we see the highest fulfillment of God's, the highest expression of God's mercy fulfilled in Jesus Christ who laid down his life, the greatest compassionate act known to mankind lays down his life for us, for us helpless sinners. When we could not save ourselves, God did what we could not do for ourselves. And we see here that God indeed is merciful. We see that he does not judge us according to our iniquities because if he did, we would get death. We would get the sentence of death. Instead, he placed our punishment on Jesus Christ. And we got the mercy of God. Justice and mercy had a tryst at the cross. And so Paul praises the God of all comfort. He says, bless be the God of all comfort, the father of all mercy. And so we see here, beloved, that he indeed is a God who cares. He indeed is a God who is concerned with us. And there's not a one of us in this room, no matter how much wealth, no matter how much money, no matter how much material blessing you have, no matter how much education, no, much, no matter how much social status you have, that have not asked the question, God, do you care about me in my time of affliction?
You see, beloved, because as, 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 as sweet as temporal blessings are and the myriad blessings that the Lord lavishes upon us, they fall short of providing the comfort for which we so long when we're faced with afflictions. You see, those blessings that we have, they're good, they're kind, it's good, it's good that God has provided us with all these things, but there are times in our life, there are circumstances in our life, there are situations with which we are faced that your money cannot resolve. Plain and simple, your wealth cannot provide you the comfort that you need from God Almighty. And the Lord says that I am the God of all comfort. He answers yes to our question, God, do you care about me in this affliction? Do you care about me in my trouble? And beloved, I want to say to you that there are some things where we can, that where we must, we, we must just simply recall God's goodness. There are some situations where we can only cast ourselves at the feet of God and ask him to bear the burden that he might sustain us. And the only way that we'll experience the comfort for which we long is to recount those wonderful deeds of the Lord. The only way we will find that comfort for which we so long is to think about the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ already. My grandfather, 90 some odd years old, reminds me all the time of how good God is amidst affliction. The psalmist says to recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord and to tell the coming generations of my grandfather over and over and over again reminds me of what God has done in his life. Even amidst his affliction, he says, Michael, I want you to remember that God is good and consequently, I should pass that right on along to my kids in my time of suffering. I should remind them that he is a comforting God, that he is merciful and that he is fully aware of the situations that we face in this life. And we can cast our burdens on him, as the psalmist says, and he will sustain us. Secondly here, Paul tells us that God provides comfort through the affliction of others. We see here the comfort of God through affliction in verses 4 through 6. You look there at verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those in, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse five, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort with which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffered. Listen, God is sovereign over everything that we face in life. Sometimes we think about the sovereignty of God and we just place God up here in this high realm and he's controlling all the ebbs and flows of the universe and we think that he is not personally involved with our lives. We think that he's disconnected from the realities that we face every day. And I love the doctrine of God's providence. The Westminster Confession of Faith said that God's providence is his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. God is intimately acquainted with all the affairs of our lives. We ought not think that God is just in this distant realm and that he knows of nothing of our hardships, but he is very much in tune with what we are facing in our everyday life. Right down to the most minute detail 
of troubles that we face. And sometimes we have this tendency to think that we are facing suffering because of something that we've done wrong. But everything comes from God's hands. God ordains everything that we face in life and the suffering that we face in life is not always a result of doing something wrong. Carl Truman highlights this for us in his lectures on Martin Luther on the cross-centered life. Sometimes the Lord just sends trouble our way so that he might demonstrate something about himself. God wants us, God, God brings trouble our way so that we would see something about the nature of the God that we serve. Simply put, sometimes we face suffering because that's the paradigm set forth by our Savior. When we read the Bible, we, from Old Testament to New, we see that Isaiah prophesied that God's servant would be a suffering servant, Isaiah 52 and 53. Some of the Israelites missed that. Some of the Pharisees were disturbed by that. They didn't want to see a Messiah that suffered. They wanted to see a Messiah that would usher in the kingdom and that they would be the powerful nation. The golden years would be restored. But Jesus comes with a different type of paradigm. He comes with one of suffering. When we read the Gospels, we see over and over again the motif of suffering before glory. When we read the Gospels, we see cross before resurrection. That's the pattern that the Savior has set for us, the cross-centered life. Beloved, hear me this morning. Your suffering is not always a result of something that you've done wrong. To be sure, there are times where we suffer because of our wrongdoing. As the Bible does tell us that God chastises his people as a father who loves his child. Okay, so rest assured that your suffering is not always a result of some sin or wrongdoing. Jesus tells us if the world hated me, the world will hate you. Jesus tells us if any man would follow after me, he must pick up his cross and deny himself. Beloved, we all have a cross to bear in this life. He says the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve as a ransom for many. And that serve that Jesus did for us, that service that Jesus provided for us was the sacrifice of his own life, was the shedding of his own blood. And when we read the Bible, we see that Jesus saw the cross set before him and it tormented him to his soul. Jesus anguished over the work that was set before him. Father, if at all possible, let this bitter cup pass by me. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Jesus Christ set the pattern of suffering for us. We have salvation because our Savior suffered for us. Make no mistake about it. His tragedy was our triumph. Jesus Christ set the pattern of the cross-centered life. He set the pattern for the life of suffering. Paul says that Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped in Philippians chapter 2, the great hymn. He said Christ humbled himself. He became man. Fully God, fully man, he died. And not only did he die, he died a death on the cross. A shameful death, a death reserved for criminals. Christ was an innocent man. A painful death, a tortuous death. A very tedious death, if you will. But that's the pattern that the Savior has set for us. You must go through the cross before you enter into glory. 
God also does something with our affliction in this life. Paul tells us in verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. He uses our suffering. He uses our afflictions. He uses the troubles that we face in this life for the spiritual well-being of other people. He uses it to bring some to faith, and he uses it to encourage those who are already in the faith. And we can recall Paul's troubles on his missionary journeys, too many to name at this point. But we see that Paul delighted in suffering for the sake of the kingdom cause. Paul delighted in suffering for the sake of seeing Christ raised up in the Corinthians. And nowhere in the Old Testament do we see this more clearly than in the story of Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. One of the brothers said, maybe we should kill him. Then they said, maybe we shouldn't. Our, our, our brother's blood would be on our hands. And so they decide to sell him into slavery. And while Joseph is in slavery, he, has, uh, he interprets the dream of two individuals, tells one of them to remember him, and he forgets him. So he's sold into slavery, he's forgotten, he's left down in despair, and then Pharaoh needs to have a dream interpreted and Joseph interprets the dream and warns Pharaoh that a famine is coming to strike the land. As a result, Joseph is placing command over all of Pharaoh's territory. And that same famine extended all the way back to Jacob's camp. And Joseph's brothers, the ones, the very ones who sold him into slavery are now faced with death because of this famine that comes and they travel down to Egypt. And yes, you guessed it, who's in command? The brother they sold into slavery. Of course, Joseph is distressed by it. Joseph is troubled by what his brothers did to him. But Joseph provides for his brothers. And at the end of the Genesis narrative, chapter 50, Joseph's brothers are worried. They're distressed because they think that Joseph is going to avenge their wrongdoing. Joseph says to them, am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. As it is, the saving of many lives are being brought about. Let me tell you something right now, TCPC. Let me tell you something, beloved. Part of God's design for your suffering is that he would use the troubles in your life to the welfare of other people. Some of you may even have the testimony of, I didn't know what was happening in my life. I was down in despair. I was in the wilderness. I was feeling pain in my body. I suffered uh, uh, unemployment. All sorts of hell was breaking loose in my family and I was uncertain of what in the world God was doing with it. And then years later, I ran into other people who needed to be encouraged and the Lord used it to bring people to faith in him. And the Lord still does that today. He did it then, he does it now, and he will still continue to do it with our afflictions. He does not let one space or one experience of our life go to waste. He is sovereign over every single minute and detail of our life. And when I was in church planters assessment, I was going through a very difficult season in my life. And two counselors sat across from me and one of them, a wonderful woman who's a piece, the wife of a PCA pastor said to me, Michael, the Lord is doing something and he will do something with the limbo. I was in despair. I was in anguish in that season of my life for a host of reasons. 
And she said to me, God is going to do something with it. Just trust him. And I want, to con I want to commend the same encouragement to you. And right now, whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever the trouble you may be going through in your life, I want you to understand that God is sovereign over it. And God oftentimes desires to use our afflictions to be a comfort to other people. We move on here. We see that Paul tells us that there is a purpose of God in our afflictions, somewhat related to the second point. We see here in verse 8, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Boy, that's an honest statement if there were ever one. Paul said we were burdened. Paul said that we were weighed down. We couldn't move. We thought we had received a sentence of death. Paul says that he despaired. Paul was saying, was intimating that there was nothing else I could do. I'd come to my wit's end. I was all out of solutions. Paul says we despaired of life itself. Sometimes living just takes the life out of you. If you've lived long enough, you know that to be the case. And if you can't say that, then you haven't lived long enough. And I can assure you, one day you will say living takes the life out of you. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where we will be in this life beset with many troubles. We will be beset with many pains. We will be beset with many things that causes us to despair. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 of all his hardships. We can't enumerate all of them now. Paul says he was beaten multiple times. He, in fact, he was beaten nearly to the point of death. He might have died in Acts chapter 14. He was beaten severely. He was shipwrecked. He was maligned. He was slandered. He was forsaken. Paul went through multiple hardships for the sake of the kingdom. Paul didn't live the rosy life. Paul lived a tough life. To be sure, he will sing of the goodness of God without a doubt. But just one read of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 will bring reality home to us. That there is a burden, there is a cross to bear when we follow Christ. And oftentimes in this life, life simply following Christ will cost us some things. In fact, I attended a funeral before I came up here. And when I return to, Lexington, uh, when I return to Orlando on Tuesday night, I'll be preparing to officiate a funeral on Wednesday morning. I attended a funeral of a young man uh, whose death just shook our community. And a couple days later, one of our dear friends said, my mother just passed away. And so I'm going back. I've just been surrounded by death. And that's life, beloved. In this life, we will experience burden. We will experience pain. We will experience hardship. Some of you today may have come in here 
and you're ready to cry out right now. Some of you in here today may be struggling with marital problems in the house. Some of you mothers may be burdened by the difficulty of rearing kids at home and you feel like you're failing and you don't know what to do. You feel like an utter failure. You feel like you're not accomplishing God's call in your life for your children. Some of you have come here today with the prospect of a job loss. Some of you today are amidst unemployment. Some of you in here today are experiencing injustice in the world. And your hearts are heavy and your hearts are burdened. I remember when I was visiting home one day, I was running on 152nd Street, a main thoroughfare down in Miami, and this woman just cried out, God, I can't take it anymore. And it startled me. She was sitting at the bus stop, and it was a girl that I grew up with and, and went to the same elementary school with, and I stopped and I said to her, you're absolutely right. You can't do it on your own. You need to depend on God and he'll bear the burden for you. Paul tells us that part of God's design for our suffering is that we would depend on him. Look there at verse nine. He says, plain and simple, simply, indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, 9b, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You ask the question, why does trouble come my way? I cannot tell you, I cannot explain all the minutia of why we face suffering in this life, but I can tell you that God has a greater purpose and design behind why he allows suffering to happen. Paul says to us here that God allows suffering to happen so that we will depend on him and not on ourselves. And we need to hear that this morning because we're inundated with secular and worldly philosophy of self-reliance. Sometimes it creeps right into our spirituality so much to the point where we think that we have actually saved ourselves. We turn our nose up at other people. God says, I care about you too much to allow you to continue in that era. So he, he is in the business of removing kickstands as a friend told me in seminary. And God wants us to fall right into his lap. He wants us to fall right into his arms. We think that God, God's going to pull the stand from under us and we're going to step off the cliff. But God wants us to step right into his arms. God wants us to depend upon him, not upon ourselves. God doesn't want us to be the God. He wants to be the God of our life. He doesn't want us to be the God of our lives. He wants to be the God. That's how he set it up. You shall have no other gods before me. That's including ourselves. And we Presbyterians need to hear that afresh. We're educated. We're upwardly mobile. We're affluent. We're making progress in society and the world. We've got great doctrine. We've got great reason to be proud. And there are good things that resonate with me. And I'm proud to be an ordained Presbyterian minister. But I also want you to understand that we cannot rely on our own self-industry. And we have to start believing, not only saying that God is sovereign over our lives, we gotta start believing it. I'm not saying that we don't have responsibility in certain areas and in certain ways, but ultimately God wants us to depend fully 
on him. We see this in Genesis. God made an Ab God called Abraham at the age of 75, promised that he would have children, and 25 years later, 24 years later, the Lord comes and says that at this time next year you're going to have a child. And then Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might be under my blessing. And Sarah laughs. Shall Abraham, as old as he is, and as good and dead as my body is, shall, we, shall I give a child to Abraham? The Lord brought them to an impossible place in their life where they could not do anything. You see, God does that. God does that to us, not because he hates us. God does that because he wants us to see something about him. God does that because he loves us. He wants to deepen and strengthen our hope in his goodness and mercy. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're saying, I actually don't know what to do about this situation. Don't do anything. Trust God. There's a song that I love. After you've done all you can, you just stand. You know that song by Donnie McClurkin? Tell me what do you do when you've done all you can? Right? And he tells you, seems like you can't make it through. He says, child, you just stand. You just stand and you trust God. Sometimes we just have to stand. Sometimes there are situations where God is waiting for us to say, I give up, Lord, I trust you. And he's in the business of doing that. And Paul says that his hope is strengthened through this. Paul says that God delivered us in the past and he'll deliver us again. The psalmist tells us, recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Paul remembered God's deliverance as the grounds for believing in his future deliverance. Beloved, we've got to jog our memories in our times of despair. We've got to rewind and remember that God cared for us up till that point. And if he cared for us up till that point, he will carry us right on through. That's what it means to depend on God, to trust that he will indeed be faithful to care for us. Paul says, remember his past deliverance. That's the hope. And we don't mean that in this unfound optimistic sense. We mean that in the confident and favorable uh, sense. We expect that God will be good to us. Sometimes God will not deliver us from the affliction in the way that we think. Sometimes God will not remove the affliction, but he will deliver us from a sinful mindset about our situation and give us strength to navigate through the affliction. But one way or the other, God will deliver us. Paul tells us as we close this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this light and momentary Affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Beloved, listen to me. God will finally deliver us one day. He will deliver us from the hardships of this life. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead, the same power as Paul speaks of, in this text that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us and he's the same God that brings us to life, that brings us to seasons of new life amidst our affliction. And Paul tells us that one day at the final resurrection, we will be raised to life eternal in God's consummate kingdom right here on earth and the troubles of this life will cease, all the tears will be bottled up 
we will have uninterrupted fellowship with God Almighty for all eternity and no more will we have to worry about afflictions or troubles any longer. For finally this life will give way to eternal and consummate glory with our God. We will be comforted for all eternity. So I say to you this morning, that power is at work in us now. That same Jesus who was raised from the dead says to us this very day that I am a high priest who sympathizes with all your weaknesses. I've been tempted in every way as you, yet without sin. So in some mysterious way, Christ knows every single pain and affliction that we have endured and are enduring in this life. And he gives us a word of comfort this morning. He says, I'm with you. And one day, that affliction will cease. Beloved, be comforted. Cast yourselves on the God of all comfort. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us. Lord, seal this word to our hearts so that we would be encouraged to serve you with joyful obedience. Amen.